Father, we're so thankful for your word, and we're so thankful for um, everything that you call us to. We pray that you would be pleased right now as we seek to understand uh, what you want us to from this passage in Acts 24, uh, and from the dialogue that your Apostle Paul had with Governor Felix and his wife, Drusilla. We ask, Lord, that you would be uh, glorified in this time of worship, that it would be a time of worship, that you would be reflected and valued in our desire to make your word clear and known and understood, that you would be reflected in our valuing of you enough to uh, listen to your word attentively and to be focused and to not only seek to understand what it says, but to seek to do what it says. We pray that you would make us doers of your word today, that we would be changed by your word today, uh, that we would not walk out of here the same person that we are right now, uh, but that we would leave here truly different, more conformed to your image, more pleasing to you. And Father, as we prayed this morning as well, that if there are any in here who don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. We ask these things for your glory. We ask it for our good. These things are best for us. We pray that you would help us to be people that strive to live righteous lives and that exercise self-control on a daily basis. Help us to be people of righteous conduct and self-control and to live wisely in light of the coming judgment. Lord, we pray that you would do this for us out of your love for us, so you would help me to preach this clearly and effectively, and you'd help us to listen effectively as well and be transformed by it. All of this we pray in your name and by your spirit. Amen. I was talking about this passage with somebody recently, and uh, at first they said, you know, it seems like an odd passage to preach on. I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure there's probably more to talk about there than it seems initially, and if you've been in a church that does expository preaching like this uh, enough, you know that that is typically the case, that uh, even in a passage like this, that's only five verses, and the narrative doesn't seem to contain much at first. Uh, there is so much here to consider, um, much more than we will consider in the very limited amount of time uh, that we have today. Um, but I do hope that, uh, that by God's grace you will be strengthened uh, by His Spirit and able to listen closely during this time, because uh, like I said, this is going to be a, a, a tougher um, sermon to hear. Uh, some of you have seen the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. Uh, if you have and you've seen the title of this sermon, you probably know uh, where I'm going with this. Uh, but for those of you who haven't seen it, the show is about a bounty hunter who's part of a religious group of bounty hunters called Mandalorians. And the Mandalorians follow a particular creed, which they refer to as the way. And part of what it means to be a Mandalorian is to strictly adhere to the way of the Mandalore. And this includes rules like helping other Mandalorians when they're in need and never removing your helmet. They all wear helmets that cover their faces. And sometimes when Mandalorians follow these rules, they say a great line. They say, this is the way. Basically, this is what following the way involves. This is what it practically means. This is the way. Long before Star Wars hijacked the way language, likely from Eastern philosophy, Followers of Jesus were sometimes called followers of the way. In verse 22, it says Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. This is not the way of the Mandalore, obviously. This is the way of the Messiah. 
Early Christianity was sometimes referred to as the way. I love that title. I wish we could recover it. Maybe it was called that because Christians were followers of Christ, who called himself the way. Right? The way is ultimately the person, Jesus. It is also the way of restored creation. It is the way of new living, the way of the age to come, the way to God the Father. It is the way, and we are followers of the way. Well, Paul, an apostle of the way, was on trial before Felix. He was the governor of the province of Judea. And if you'll recall, Paul had been rioted in the temple, and he had been rescued by the Roman tribune Lysias. And Lysias had tried bringing Paul before the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council of the day, and he was hoping to get answers, but it only led to Paul causing internal conflict when he proclaimed that he believed in the resurrection before the Sanhedrin. A plot was hatched to take Paul's life, and Lysias got wind of it by God's providence through Paul's nephew. And so he sent Paul off to Caesarea to stand trial before Governor Felix. And last week we saw the high priest Ananias, along with some of the elders, come down to Caesarea to press charges against Paul. And their spokesperson, Tertullus, flattered Felix and made false accusations against the apostle, to which we saw Paul respond with words of honor and truth. He repudiated their accusations, but Paul did acknowledge that according to the way, his faith and worship was consistent with biblical Judaism, which may have helped demonstrate that this way was not, in fact, the sect that they were claiming it was. It was not a perverted variant of Judaism that may have been unprotected by Roman law. If anything, the religion of the Sadducees was the perverted variant which should lack protection and that's where our narrative picks up today. Let's consider the story together. I'm going to exposit some of the text uh, before we get to one of the points. So don't worry if it seems like uh, it's getting into things too much up front uh, before the first point. This is all planned. I don't intend for this to be uh, a long sermon. Um, I promise. Not that you would mind anyway, right? You don't mind long sermons. Well, let's go ahead and, uh, and start looking at the passage together. And then we'll, uh, we'll get to the uh, first point in a little bit. But starting in verse 22, you can look at the text with me. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Felix realizes that Paul has committed no crime. The charges against him are unsubstantiated. There is a theological dispute, but that happened after Paul had been arrested, and Felix is not about to wade into that. Apparently, his knowledge of the way was relatively better than some. Uh, We're not sure where his knowledge came from. Maybe it was from the growing popularity of the Christian movement. Uh, Maybe it was from the fact that his wife, Trusilla, was Jewish herself. But his knowledge does seem to contribute to his decision to put off the case somehow, perhaps because he knew that, uh, that this way wasn't really the sect that they were claiming it to be. And so Felix, he postpones the case, he adjourns the meeting, and he states that he wants to hear Lysias' testimony. This may have been more of an excuse rather than a genuine reason because he already knew Lysias' testimony. Lysias had written to him in Acts 23, verse 29, saying, listen to what he said, quote, this is Lysias, I found that Paul was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death 
or imprisonment. So we already knew what Lysias thought. And we're not sure if Felix and Lysias ever discussed the matter again. Even if they did, it certainly didn't compel Felix to hand down a verdict. What we do know, however, is that we can count on Felix to act in his own best interest. He was caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he knew Paul was an innocent man, so he couldn't turn him over to the Jews. He should have acquitted Paul and let him go free, but he also wanted to curry the Jews' favor. Paul's powerful Jewish opponents would be very displeased if he were released. So what does Felix do? He kicks the can down the road. He just postpones the case, and in the meantime, he lets Paul be treated fairly well. Verse 23, it says he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Paul's not being punished. He's just being detained, likely in Herod's palace, for any future happenings that he might need to be present for. And based on what Paul says later in Acts, he may still be in chains at this point, but verse 23 says that he experienced a good, de- a good degree of freedom here. He's able to have any of his own people take care of him. Friends, family members, almost certainly fellow Christians from the local church, people are able to provide for his needs. Moving on in the story, verse 24 says that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's interesting. Why would they do that? Why would they send for Paul to hear him speak about this? Drusilla was Jewish, so she may have had some kind of curiosity in the way, but that would certainly be interesting since she was actually the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. You may remember this Herod from Acts chapter 12. He was the Herod who laid violent hands on some Christians. He was the one who killed James, the brother of John, and he was the one who put Peter in prison before an angel broke him out. That was back in Acts chapter 12. And so it would be interesting if it was his daughter, Drusilla, who had some kind of curiosity about the way. Or maybe the interest in the way was more on Felix's end. We don't know. Whatever their motivation was, they did send for Paul, and he speaks to them about faith in the Messiah, Jesus. And isn't this part of what God said Paul would do? Right? If you remember back when Paul was called in Acts chapter 9, his experience on the road to Damascus, it says that God came to a man, he spoke to a disciple named Ananias, who he was going to be sending to Paul. And this is what God said to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. He said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And here Paul is speaking about faith in Jesus before a ruler, a person in position of authority. One person put it well when he said Paul's imprisonment wasn't the end of Paul's missionary work. It was a continuation of Paul's missionary work. God moved Paul into different venues to proclaim truth to people like Felix and Drusilla, who might have been difficult to reach otherwise. We don't know. And I think as someone else pointed out too, Paul is a good example for us here of how we ought to boldly testify to all people, regardless of their stature in this world. And so 
Whatever knowledge of the way Felix had, he was about to receive a greater education. An education that you could say perhaps was tailored to his educational needs. Paul addresses three topics with Felix and his wife. Righteous conduct, self-control, and the coming judgment. Those three topics, I think you could say, we have an educational need for as well. So we'll consider each of those in turn this morning. The first to explain what the way looks like in action. Okay, what the way looks like in action. And the third gives a motivation for following it. So the first two, what does it mean to follow the way? And the third, why should you follow it? What's the main point? Turn from your way, follow the way. Turn from your way, follow the way. Again, pardon the extended introduction. Like I said, I don't intend this for, to be a longer sermon. I just wanted to cover some of the contextual groundwork uh, for these three topics. So with that said, let's turn our attention to Paul's first two topics, righteous conduct and self-control. What does following the way practically mean? Righteous conduct and self-control control. Point number one, Paul is a missionary uh, par excellence. He contextualizes his message to the audience that he's trying to reach. Now, it doesn't mean that he changes the message. What it means is that he brings the message to bear on his listeners in a way that's personal and specific to them. So Paul is speaking to Governor Felix and to his wife, Drusilla. And you may remember from last week that Felix, Felix, along with his brother Pallas, were both freed slaves. They were either freed by Emperor Claudius himself or by his mother Antonia. Both Felix and Pallas rose to positions of power in the empire. Felix secured the position of governor over the province of Judea, but contrary to the lying flattery of Tertullus, who we heard last week, who said that his reign was characterized by much peace. That was not the case. Instead, Felix's reign was riddled with uprisings. And others have described Felix's leadership in terms of oppression and tyranny and brutality. He was also an immoral man, as this passage bears out. What do I mean by that? Well, after Paul speaks to Felix and Drusilla, it says that Felix was afraid And he said in verse 25, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So he sends Paul off until he's ready to talk again. But verse 26 says, At the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. He knows Paul is innocent, but Felix detains him anyway. Why? Well, in part, it was because he hopes to squeeze Paul for some cash. He's looking for a bribe. God hates bribes. He strictly forbids brides in his law. Exodus 23, verse 8 says, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Bribing officials, believe it or not, was also against Roman law, even though, unfortunately, it wasn't an uncommon practice in the empire. And so Felix, in his greed, delays justice for an innocent man. 
but he's also motivated by self-interest here. Verse 27 says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The two years, it could refer to the duration of Paul's custody or to the duration of Felix's governorship. Uh, at any rate, when Felix is succeeded in office, he leaves Paul, an innocent man, imprisoned, since having the favor of the Jews was advantageous for him. So Acts 24 depicts Felix as an immoral man. He's a man who acts unjustly out of greed and self-interest. History also paints him as a man of unrestrained lust. Verse 24 says that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Drusilla was one of Felix's three wives. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and the sister of Agrippa II, who we'll see in the next chapter. And as the story goes, Drusilla was originally married to Azazus, the king of Emesa. She was married to him at the age of 14. Drusilla was pleasing to the eye, and Felix was attracted to her. And so Felix enlisted the help of a magician to request that Drusilla leave her current husband, Azazus, and come marry him instead. He said that he would make her happy, which was likely a play on Felix's name in Latin, from which we get the English term felicity. And apparently there was not enough felicity in Drusilla's current marriage, and so she left Azazus at the age of 16 to become the adulterous wife of Felix. And so when Felix, verse 24, quote, sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Perhaps Paul spoke about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and how the Messiah had in fact come and how he had been executed on a Roman cross and raised from the dead three days later and how he offers salvation to all who repent and believe. But what we know Paul specifically addressed, which may seem odd at first, but hopefully less now in light of what you know about Felix's background, Verse 24 says that Paul, or sorry, verse 25 says that Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Hmm, righteousness. What does righteousness mean here? Normally, I shouldn't say normally, sometimes when we hear the word righteousness, we take it to refer to moral perfection, perfect innocence before God. And there are times when it can mean that. But righteousness in this context is referring instead to upright conduct. It's righteousness in terms of ethical behavior or living in accordance with God's law. Is it any surprise then that Paul chooses to address the topic of righteousness with Felix? Why is he doing this? It's because part of what it means to follow the way is righteous conduct. And it's a part that for Felix demands a major change in his life. Personally and specifically for Felix, this is a big change that the way demands of him. And just as a brief evangelistic aside, like Paul, we must strive to challenge people to turn from their specific sins to follow the way themselves. And for Felix, 
Turning from his way to follow the way means turning from his life of immorality to a life of righteous conduct. Turning from a life of immorality to a life of righteous conduct. I may have heard repentance described once as turning from our way to God's way. That's good. You could also put it like this. We must turn from our way to the way. Turn from our way to the way. Moral living is part of what following the way means. Righteous conduct. This is the way. Righteous conduct. Felix needed to hear this. Do you need to hear this? Are you and I really that different from Felix? I want to ask you this. How hard do you personally try to live a righteous life? We'll get back to that in a second, but I'll ask you this one first, this question first. You don't have to answer this out loud. Does your righteous conduct have anything to do with your salvation? What do you think? Does it have anything to do with your salvation? The answer is yes, it absolutely does. And that might come as a surprise at first, but you'll see what I mean by that. Um, I do think, though, that one of the reasons why we might be less concerned about ethical behavior than we should is because we have a somewhat messed up understanding of the gospel. Is it fair to say that we are saved by faith alone? It really depends on what you mean by that. Faith is alone the means by which we are saved, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. Saving faith always, 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 always has good works. As James says in James 2.17, quote, faith by itself, faith alone, if it does not have works, is dead. An alone faith is a dead faith. It's a faith that does nothing and saves no one. The type of faith that saves is a faith that has works. Good works are not something added to faith to give it saving power. They're part of what saving faith involves. In other words, part of what proper faith in Christ involves is righteous conduct. And as we'll see next, self-control too. Why is that? Well, it's because saving trust, saving faith in Christ, saving trust in Christ, is a trust that not only relies on Christ as Savior, but recognizes Him as God. It's a trust that involves turning from our ways and turning to Him. Repentance and faith are not so separable. Saving trust is a trust that recognizes Jesus as the one worthy of our love and obedience. Obedience, which involves all kinds of good works. It's a trust that has good works. Good works are part of the package of saving faith. And so Paul, as he speaks, verse 24, about faith in Christ, he's speaking about faith in Christ Jesus, he speaks about something for, important for Felix to know. That part of what this faith means practically is righteous conduct. Righteous conduct. This is the way. So I'll ask you again, how hard 
Are you trying to be righteous? Are you trying at all? You know what the law of God is. Do not lie. As we saw last week, that includes small lies. That includes social or conversational fibs. That includes exaggerations and all the rest. Do not steal. That includes stealing time from your employer or downloading music illegally. Don't harbor hatred or anger in your hearts towards others. That includes towards your spouse, towards your kids, to your colleagues, to your politicians too. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Felix needed to hear this one. That includes for us lustful fantasizing. That includes any kind of romantic touching outside of marriage. That certainly includes viewing pornography. And we have become so desensitized to this. That includes viewing immoral content in movies and TV shows. Do not do it. I'm not just talking about the R-rated scenes. When you think about this one, actors who are not married in real life even kiss each other. I say even, that's not right to word. You're viewing a live act of sexual immorality. And even if they were married, how much romantic affection between a married couple do you think you should be sharing in? How much of that should be shared with you? Do not covet. That includes your coworker's job, your family member's wealth, their friend's life in a lower-cost conservative state, etc., etc. We could go on, but I would be remiss if I did not add that righteous conduct is much more than just not sinning, is it not? It's also what? Doing good works. Good works. How much do you serve others? How generous are you with your money? How active are you in reaching the lost? How faithful are you in prayer? Let's put it bluntly. If you're not trying, trying to live a righteous life, you're not a follower of the way. Righteous conduct. This is the way. Felix and Drusilla needed to hear this. And maybe we do too. Faith in Christ means big changes. It means turning from our way to the way. It means turning from an immoral life to a righteous life. That's part of the package. Faith in Christ involves trying to be righteous, not because trying to be righteous saves us, but because trying to be righteous is part of what it practically means to trust in Jesus as our saving God, to trust in him as our divine Savior. Faith in Christ also involves self-control. Verse 25, you can look again with me. It says Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control. The Greek word for self-control means, quote, restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. In other dictionaries that it conveys the sense of having power over yourself. Our desires can be like dogs. Sometimes when you take dogs out for a walk, they're always trying to get ahead of you. If you maybe have a poorly behaved dog, they might be trying to go this way or that way, and they pull and tug against the leash. And a firm grip and a strong arm is what keeps them properly restrained, right? Self-control is what keeps our desires properly restrained. As one commentator noted, he said, quote, the word in this passage means self-control in its broadest sense and would even apply to Felix's bribe-taking proclivities. 
But in the presence of both Drusilla and Felix, however, it is likely that Paul had a more specific focus on their sexual behavior. So self-control with respect to restraining their sexual desires. No doubt self-control, like, uh, like righteous conduct, was an appropriate topic for Paul to address with a man of unrestrained lust, like Felix. Following the way also meant turning from indulgence to restraint. This is an important part of what faith in Christ involves, and it was another big change that the way demanded for Felix. So self-control, this is the way too. This is the way. This is such a hard one for us. I think it's fair to say that as a culture, we really struggle with self-control, don't we? We really, really struggle with self-control. If our desires are like dogs, we might like to think that we're taking our dogs for a walk, but oftentimes they're really the ones walking us around. They're pulling us in every which way, in whatever direction they want to go. And like Felix, exercising restraint may be one of the biggest changes faith in Christ requires of us too. What is the opposite of self-control? It's indulgence. It's giving in to our wrong desires. See, unlike with Felix, when he lustfully desired the married Drusilla, and the object of his desire was in and of itself wrong, sometimes the object of our desires may not be wrong in and of themselves, right? Sometimes they're good things that we desire, but whenever we desire something in excess, it becomes a wrong desire. As a culture, we overindulge in all kinds of ways, but one of the fundamental problems is the same, a lack of self-control. Perhaps you overindulge in television. One source of this, this is amazing, just listen. Quote, watching TV is America's favorite pastime. According to data from the American Time Use Survey, in the 2013 to 17 period, the U.S. civilian non-institutional population ages 15 and older spent an average of 2 hours 46 minutes per day watching TV. This amounted to more than half, 55.2%, of the total time per day they spent in leisure and sports activities. How do you compare to that average? Just think about that for a second. We're talking about the average American watching over 19 hours of TV a week. That's 84 hours a month. 84 hours, three and a half days a month. And over 1,009 hours a year. 42 full days a year. 24-hour days. 20, 42 full days a year. Listen, if, if this is you, I, I say this in love. We can't say that our lives are too busy to serve, that we don't have time to serve. We have no right to complain about that if we fall in line with this average. What if you just cut your TV time in half, which is still over an hour a day? That's a lot in my opinion. You still have 21 extra days a year, or you still have 21 days a year. Can we not indulge to excess? Why? Why do we struggle with something like this? Well, with almost every sin, there's probably more than one reason, but one reason why we struggle with this is because we lack self-control. Right? We don't keep our dogs on a tight leash. Dare I mention social media? I, I will mention it. Um, this is one I, I looked up to. 
According to one source, the average internet user in America within the age range of 16 to 64 spent over two hours a day connected to social media in 2021. What I want to know is how much overlap there is with that and the TV time. Between those two, social media alone, that's 14 hours a week, over 60 hours a month, 730 hours a year, over full 30 days a year, the excessive indulgence is breathtaking. And maybe I'm describing you right now. If so, then today is the day to act. Don't leave here and do nothing about it. You can even check, if you dare, you can check the app usage on your phone. You can check it later today, and what you find might horrify you. Again, why do we struggle with this? Why the excessive indulgence? One reason is because we lack self-control. We don't keep our dogs on a tight leash. Perhaps you overindulge in food or drink, overeating or overdrinking. The Bible calls it gluttony or drunkenness. Why is this a struggle? Again, many reasons, but one is, again, with any sin of excessive indulgence, is a lack of self-control. Maybe you struggle with excessive spending, buying more than you need. Maybe you forsake Bible reading and prayer time or church gatherings because you crave the extra time for other things. Maybe you struggle going to bed on time or getting up on time. Why? Again, one of the reasons is because we don't restrain our sinful desires we don't keep our dogs on a tight leash. Whether it be in food or drink, in TV or social media, in spending or spiritual disciplines, in going to bed or getting up, we lack restraint. We lack self-control. Now, I know there were a lot of application points there. Perhaps that's just one way to show how prominent of a problem this is for many of us. Felix would not be alone in America today. He would not be alone as someone who lacks restraint. Right now, what I want you to do is to just, just pick the points that you struggle with most to focus on. Just pick one or two. Perhaps it's not even one I mentioned. Whatever that is for you, whatever area of self-control you struggle with most, just pick that. Whatever that struggle is for you, I want to ask you, how important of an issue do you think this is? When Paul reasoned with Felix about self-control, I don't think he suggested it as an optional add-on to faith in Christ. I think, along with righteous conduct, he talked about it as part of what faith in Christ involves. It's part of the package. Part of what it means to follow the way is to turn from sinful indulgence to self-restraint. We may say we have faith, we can say whatever we want, but genuine trust in Jesus as our saving God practically means, practically means that we will strive to restrain our sinful desires, just like we will strive to live righteously, neither of which we will do perfectly, but that will be the definite trajectory and direction of your life. So if someone close to you were asked, are you a person who indulges to excess or a person of self-restraint? If they were asked, are you someone who makes living a righteous life a top priority? What would they say? What kind of person would they say you are? Righteous conduct and self-control. This is the way. 
This is what followers of the way do. But what if you don't? What if those questions that I just asked are answered with a no? Righteousness and self-control are not the direction of your life. We're not just saying that you're just moving in that direction very slowly, but you're still genuinely headed in that direction. What if you're like Felix, and that's just not the trajectory of your life? If an honest look instead reveals a trajectory of moral relaxness and sinful indulgence. Paul's third topic highlights the importance of righteous conduct and self-control. It addresses the consequence of persisting in our ways rather than following the way, which is the way of faith in Christ. Point number three, judgment is coming. Sorry, point number two, judgment is coming. There are only two points, don't worry. Verse 25, you can look again with me. Verse 25, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. How do you think these three items relate to each other? What does the future judgment have to do with living a righteous life and being self-controlled now in the present? The answer is very simple. The kind of people who will fare well in God's judgment are people who live righteous and self-controlled lives. They are righteous and self-controlled people, followers of the way. The kind of people who will be condemned in God's judgment are people whose lives are characterized by moral relaxedness and sinful indulgence. They are morally light and unrestrained people, not followers of the way. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Again, this is not works-based salvation. This is just true. We haven't said anything about how righteous and self-controlled people get the power to live that way. That power, of course, comes from Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. We're just talking about the fact that people who live genuinely moral and self-controlled lives will inherit the new creation, but that those who do not will face God's wrath. This is so important. Again, we are saved by faith, but saving faith involves more than simply believing something or saying something. It involves actually turning from our way to follow the way. Faith in Christ means we have the desire to live righteous and self-controlled lives. If you don't have that desire, you simply don't have saving faith. Paul speaks more about the coming judgment in his letter to the Romans. This is from Romans chapter 2. You heard part of it read earlier today. Listen very closely to Paul's words. These are Paul's words, not mine. Paul says in verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Did you hear that? 
The people who do good will receive glory, honor, peace, and life. But those who are self-seeking and lead unrighteous lives will receive God's wrath and fury. Now, sometimes we mess up these kind of passages because we're so concerned about making salvation sound works-based. We don't want to do that. And so what we do is we take a passage like this and we read it as if it's saying, those who do good inherit eternal life, but obviously no one can do good. No one is good. And so what you really need to do is to rely on Jesus' goodness to count for you because that's the only way that you can receive eternal life. And while there's a sense in which that's true, that's just not what this passage is saying. It's just not saying that. I think it's saying what it sounds like it's saying. Verse 6, again, Paul's words. God will render to each one according to his works. Those who do good will receive good. Those who do bad will receive bad. New Testament scholar Leon Morris said in his commentary on the letter to the Romans, he said this, quote, It is the invariable teaching of the Bible that judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. They are the outward expression of what the person is deep down. I'll say that again. Works are the outward expression of what the person is deep down. The evidence of who you are will be examined on that last day. Your works will be examined on that last day. So what kind of person are you? Are you a follower of the way? A person who trusts in Jesus as your saving God? If so, then your life will be characterized by righteous conduct and self-control. Or are you like Felix? A person who wants to remain God of his own life. If so, then you will be a person whose life is characterized by moral relaxedness and unrestraint. And the right response for you is the same as Felix's initial response. Fear. Fear. Acts 24, verse 25. You can look again. It says, And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He was afraid and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. This challenging message may not have been what the curious Felix or Drusilla had anticipated hearing. Felix was afraid, and rightly so. He heard about the coming judgment, the day when God would judge all people according to their works. And he knew, he knew that his conduct was not righteous and that he was not self-controlled. He knew it. And so here he is, as I think someone pointed out, the governor of Judea, a man of position and power, here he is in fear before prisoner. But it's not the prisoner he fears. It's the prisoner's message. It's the message of a future judgment. And a judgment whose date has been set and whose judge is impartial, whose judge is no respecter of man or position. Before God's bar, 
all men are alike. The prisoner and the governor. The homeless man and the businessman. The prostitute and the president. All will appear before God to be judged impartially according to their works. According to the evidence of who they really are. God's word describes it best. Revelation chapter 20. Listen to what John said in his vision. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus adds in a parable in Matthew 13, quote, and So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He calls hell in Mark 9, 48, the place, quote, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Any sane man ought to tremble at those words, apart from Jesus. Felix heard Paul's message, and he was afraid. That's the right place to, uh, to start, is fear. I would say not just fear, but bone-chilling fear. This is not a game. This is not some kind of joke. God is real. Hell is real. Judgment day is real. And the evidence of who you truly are will be examined on that day. So what are you going to do? What are people like Felix and Drusilla and you and me supposed to do? can take a cue from Paul's reasoning with Felix. Be found on that day to be a person of righteous conduct and self-control. Be a follower of the way. But how? Are we supposed to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? To do nothing more than muster all the willpower we've got to try to be better somehow? No. And if you do, it won't work. See, the problem is that you're not a righteous and self-controlled person. What you need is to become a different person. You need to become a different person. You need to change. Paul says in his letter to Titus, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to turn from our way, and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in the present age. That's the instruction for us. But how do we get the ability to follow this instruction? Verses 13 through 14. Paul says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Messiah redeems us and the Messiah purifies us. He redeems us and he purifies us. We are all in need of redemption, aren't we? On your own, you have not led a life of righteous conduct. You haven't. You are not moral. You are not self-controlled. You are like Felix. You are like Drusilla. You are immoral and you lack restraint. And your lawlessness, the Bible says, comes with a price. Every single sin will be laid bare before God on that day. And every single one must be punished. The fine that you owed could not be calculated in earthly dollars. It was an eternity of suffering and hell. The place, Jesus says, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. But praise our great God and Savior, who became a man, Jesus, the Messiah, to redeem you. He purchased you out of hell and paid for your penalty himself. How? By giving his life for you on a cross. And the text says that he not only redeemed you, he not only took your place, paid your penalty, the text says that he purified you. He purified you to be part of his own people. How? By wrapping his arms around you and uniting you to himself so that as he drowned in the waters of the grave, our unrighteous and unrestrained hearts were drowned with him. And as he rose out of the grave three days later, we, being united with him, rose out of the water with him too. But that old person stays in the grave. That old person is dead. We've been purified of it, cleansed, made new, resurrected with a new heart that truly desires to obey God's law and refrain from sin. As Paul says in Titus, Jesus purified, quote, for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why are we zealous for good works? Because we've been purified by Jesus. We're people that love God and truly love others. Good works, righteous conduct, and self-control are the fruit of a purified heart, of a transformed heart. So the power to follow the way does not ultimately come from you. It comes from the Messiah, from the one who is himself the way. And it comes to you through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you to apply the work of the Messiah to you. How can you receive this redemption? How can you receive this purification, this deep, heart-cleansing, person-changing purification that's available to you in Jesus? Well, you cannot earn it. 
You do not deserve it. God offers it as a free gift by His grace to all who repent and put their faith in Jesus. To all who turn from their way to the way. And to all who trust in Jesus alone to save them. God redeems them and he purifies them. Part of what having faith in Jesus means is righteous conduct and self-control. Not only because saving faith recognizes Christ as God, but because all those with saving trust in Jesus experience his person-changing purification. They become new people. People who have the power to live righteous and self-controlled lives because they truly love God and they desire his glory most. And that's a desire that's great enough to motivate any good work and it's strong enough to restrain any sinful desire. Turn from your way Follow the way. Your way leads to death, but the way leads to life. Turn to him this morning if you have not. You don't know when you will be called to give an account for your life. When you stand before God's judgment seat and he examines your works, what kind of person will he find you to be? Will you be found to be an upright and self-controlled person? Revealing that you are a genuine follower of the way, a person who's truly trusted in Christ and experienced his redemption and purification? If you can't say yes to that with 100% certainty, please do not leave this place today until you can. Come talk afterwards. We can talk more. But do not leave. Some commentators view Felix's story as a tragedy. He heard the truth from Paul's lips, just like you've heard it from the pulpit today. And Felix was afraid. He sent Paul away for the time being. Verse 26 says that at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. Perhaps they continued to discuss the way, or maybe they discussed Paul's case. We don't know. But Felix wanted money, so he kept Paul in custody. He was hoping for a gain of some kind. And also for his own sake, he wanted to maintain good relations with the Jews. And verse 27 says that when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You see, the reason why some may see Felix's story as a tragedy is because he may have expressed some curiosity in the way he may have experienced some right conviction. He may have even felt some genuine fear. But, at least as far as we know, Felix did not turn from his way to the way. And the story ends with him continuing to act unjustly by keeping an innocent man detained. Don't let the same tragedy be yours. Don't let this message pass you by in vain. What does faith in Christ practically involve? What does it mean to follow the way? Part of what it means is righteous conduct and self-control. This is the way. Why should you follow the way? 
Because God will judge the world one day, and that includes you. And only those who follow the way will live. So we'll say it again. Turn from your way and follow the way. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your grace you would help us do just that. Help us turn from our sinful ways and to follow your way. Father, we pray that for any of us here who do not have saving faith in you, saving trust in you, which involves recognizing you as God and striving to live a righteous life and a self-controlled life as a result, we pray, Father, that if, if there are any of us in here today that do not have that saving faith, that you would cause us to see that and that we truly would not leave today until we have it. Please, Lord, cause us all to stand before you on that last day with an abundance of good works to testify that we are true followers of you, to testify that our faith is in you, Jesus, and that we have experienced the person-changing purification that you've made available to us. Let there not be any in here who are found to lack righteous conduct and self-control on that last day. Cause us, Father, by your grace to live every day as people that strive for righteousness and that restrain our sinful desires. If we have faith in you and you have transformed us and we have a love for you, and we have a desire for your glory, which ought to motivate good works and restrain our sinful desires. Please, Father, help us to walk in that by your Holy Spirit. Cause us to experience that more and more every day. Help us to be honest with ourselves and to look at our lives. We want to know how we will fare when we stand before your judgment seat. Please, Father, cause us all to stand in you, Jesus, and to be changed into the people that will fare well on that day, justified by your grace and evidenced by our works. Pray this in your name. Amen.